Go ahead and turn to that very last chapter of Zechariah. So this is where you can go to the last book of the Old Testament. It's beginning and, and literally take a, just a left and you're right there. Chapter 14 of Zechariah. As we finish up this book of the Minor Prophets leading into just a, a few weeks that we will be in Malachi to finish up this study in these 12 Minor Prophets. Now this text that we have in chapter 14, really more than just uh, in order, it, it does thematically come on the heels of verses 8 and 9 of Zechariah 13, where he says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. That's him securing his remnant. And I will put this third into the fire, and he will refine like gold that remnant. Um, they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say... The Lord is my God. And then he says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. So there are 16 different uses of the phrase on that day in verses or in chapters 12 through 14. And we marked this. This really is, there's two oracles that this book ends on, which basically, again, remembering an oracle is basically a burdened speech. It's a heavy, heavy speech. But remember also the theme of Zechariah actually is encouragement. The people had been back out of Babylon into Jerusalem, exhorted to build the temple, but it's been like 20 years. And basically all the romance of coming back together as a community has kind of died out um, in the sense that there's been enough uh, famine at times, there's been enough continual influx of the foreign government, basically the Persians and culture that was in, infusing the land. And there had been some that had, in their discouragement, been tempted with going back to false practices and did so even in Jerusalem. And so Zechariah comes as a prophet to encourage the people, do what the Lord has said. But the message that he brings basically is, do what the Lord has said because there is a kingdom coming that is not yet and has not yet come, but will be secured for you one day. And this is what it looks like. And this is what it will be like. This is what it will be like for the enemies and this is what it will be like for the people of God. And it seems like a strange kind of coaching, rah-rah kind of speech, but... It's the kind that we as believers, especially maybe particularly those of us in the West, need to remember, mainly because I do think that those who are more regularly persecuted, especially from the outside, um, externally, although I think that cultural and, and governmental pressures will increase for the true Christian um, in our country, at the same time, um, there are those who long for that future kingdom more regularly, I think, in other cultures than we do as believers. Because we have a tendency to be so numbed by how good we have it that we just basically have done a, a horrible disservice in the evangelical church today, which basically is we've made God the helper of making our kingdoms now something really worth living for. That's not why God has saved you, if indeed you're saved. Okay, but this meets up grandly with what we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years in pulpits um, with this moralistic kind of teaching um, where God can help you be better, whatever. Just fill in the blank. Better parent, better uh, kid, better... Why don't we have more of those, by the way? Why don't we have... God can make you a more obedient kid. Um, better, um, better romance, better marriage, better, uh, better job, whatever. Better, better investor of your finances. There's no doubt that there is wisdom of the Lord. There is no doubt that there is great help. And it, in all of those things, there really is. But when that is the main diet 
out of pulpits into people's ears. It doesn't do anything but exacerbate their natural tendency, which is God can help me have a really, really great kingdom right now. And then there's no longing. You, we so buffer ourselves in the West that we don't feel the force of famines or economic downturns. I mean, occasionally we will have people in our midst who really felt the sting about four or five years ago or, again, about 20-plus years ago. And, and different times that the e- economics will downturn enough for it really to hurt. And I'm not diminishing that, but I'm just saying that we need to keep it in front of us because it is close to the gospel. It is part of the gospel we need to remember that there is a kingdom that's not yet so that basically those of us who do have so much to give it away, to loosen our hold and our grip. Basically, I'll say this. I think there is a quotient between how firmly we hold to and remember the coming kingdom and how tightly we hold on to our resources. Now, this message today actually is not at all about resources. It's not about giving or anything like that. But it is about encouragement, actually. Even though it's a second oracle, it's a burden, it's a heavy speech, It is still about encouragement. But if Zechariah is the, if not one of the, or the toughest book in the Bible to really interpret rightly, 12 through 14 is the most difficult portion of the book, and chapter 14 is the most difficult chapter of that portion. So we have to come to the text with humility. Maybe some of of you saw this week on Twitter as I posted that as I'm reading through other people who have commented on Zechariah 14, I came to Martin Luther, and here's what he said. Here in this chapter, I give up, for I'm not sure what the prophet is talking about. Thanks, Marty. Standing on your shoulders. But it should be noted, he still goes on. In his commentary, uh, as he begins to take note, and I'm not sure he really wrote it as a, as a more technical commentary. I think Calvin probably accomplished that more during the Reformation. But, but Luther still made a lot of observations, and I love where he defaulted. He defaulted to associating it, finding its culmination always in Christ, either his first coming or his second coming. Because no matter how technically right we end up getting about Zechariah 14, we do know that it finds its culmination in Christ. Always. So... Chops to Martin Luther. There are credible ways of seeing the text with a mix of figurative and literal. You're going to hear some pretty crazy stuff in this chapter. We're going to read the whole thing. I think it's safest to see the text as being literal, but still containing imagery. What I mean is we shouldn't leave it to ourselves to decide what is figurative, what is literal, when there seems to be no change in the language between the descriptions of some pretty fantastic or horrible events. But at the same time, just like a parable, I mean, Christ was trying to teach a deeper lesson in the parables, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a shepherd on that hill tending sheep. There was still literal observation of something, but he was teaching a lesson through it. So I think really that's our best course is to see everything that he says as being fulfilled literally. And I would say our our disposition needs to be literally in His second coming. No matter how fantastic it sounds. But also in that fulfillment that there's imagery. Now, let me say this. The reason I default to the second coming is because historically, even as we look back over 2,500 years since this was written, there's really not a set of circumstances that fulfill what Zechariah is talking about in chapter 14. There are few. But because it's attached to a whole kind of statement or oracle, they seem to really fit more closely together than just being able to piecemeal it. 
So here's another thing that I mean with the literal, but with some imagery. There could be some fulfillment literally in time of some of this, but it still gives imagery to what's to come when Christ returns. Okay, so just keep that in mind. We're going to default to literal. We're going to default to the second coming in the language. But there still is some imagery as we understand how all this has found its fulfillment when Christ came, but also the fact that Christ is coming back. And there should be something for us to remember as we think about the Old Testament prophets, particularly as they look forward to the coming of Christ, is that they see the first coming and the second coming as being this kind of total package um, there certainly are some things that are accomplished in his first coming, but they wouldn't have spanned the years, um, broken it up too much. They just kind of see this. That's why it was difficult. There's a suffering servant, and then all of a sudden you have this ruling king. It's difficult. To, how can that happen? He just, he died. Well, this means he's alive. So I think there's something for us in that, not to ignore everything in between. I'm not saying let's ignore the last 2,500 years in between or 2,000 years in between. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that when we consider Christ's coming and His reign and His rule, that we, as often as we look back at the cross and what He's accomplished on our behalf, we need to be looking forward to His coming. This is why we talk about Second Advent so much when we celebrate the Lord's table. We should always be thinking, came once and we're going to do this until He comes. We've got to do this, folks, because if we don't, we're going to miss out on, I think, what Scripture uses as the trump card for encouragement in your life. No matter how difficult is the kingdom now for you, which is you're in his kingdom positionally, but just not actually yet. So you're suffering with the fallen nature of sin and all its effects, your own faults and failures and sin, but also the world is just busted up. But no matter what happens in this in-between state, the encouragement of his coming is the trump card. It'll be this kingdom. So bottom line is, I hope you leave encouraged today. Now, we're not going to go over the the background again of Zechariah. I've I've told you basically the aim is to encourage about the time period, about 20 years after the return from Babylon. If you need some more information, they're in the notes that are online. I got done with my notes so early this week that I forgot to put them online until this morning. And so uh, just... Can't put them all together at the same time. So um, there were some out there, but if not, then you can uh, you can go ahead and go online and uh, and pull those up later. But there's a little bit of a summary of the background there, so I'll just leave it at that. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 at first. And I think there are some natural divisions that we have here where you see a battle waged and apparently lost, but then it actually is ultimately won. In verses 6 to 11, you have a picture of how God establishes a city for himself and what does that look like. Then in verses 12 through 15, how he judges the enemy nations that came around his people. And he is going to bring judgment on them. But then how he ultimately assembles this spiritual nation that is going to be what I call in resident holiness. Basically, as he brings finally his people together, they are the called out ones, but in every way. There will be no vile behavior, thought, or anything. There will only be the pure. So we'll talk about all of those things. First, we're going to deal with the fact that we have a war waged, or a battle waged, and then a war won, verses 1 through 5. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, 
For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight. Against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by the very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. What a beautiful picture. You know, I reckoned last week how I, I do enjoy kind of superhero kind of motif. I liked, you know, kind of rising from the ashes and then conquering at the end. Um, Rocky top themes, you know, those are, those are great. We all kind of can connect with them. Um, we've also referenced this before. Again, just uh, my, my geekness just coming out of me. I still love um, in uh, the Two Towers of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I still love the Battle at Helm's Deep. I love how awful it is. I love how it seems like it's absolutely hopeless. And I love how Gandalf throws that really cool staff out on the top of the mountain and then just orcs go flying everywhere. It's just really, really cool. It just is cool. But the themes are really great because what we see then is even though certainly Gandalf is no Christ, but is he a figure, a type of? Well, maybe, maybe. Whether or not there's intent in, in Tolkien's character, I think there might have been in Tolkien's use of, of Gandalf, but he still was certainly flawed and infallible. So again, it wasn't perfect. But anytime we get these themes that shoot us to the real Christ is good. And I love that phrase. Then the Lord will go out and fight. Okay, so here's the picture. Here's what we have to understand about this day where a battle is waged, but then the war won. First of all, I think we need to point out what he says at the very first. A day is coming for the Lord. This is the Lord's day. When the Lord has his final battle, whether you want to call it Armageddon at Megiddo or whatever the, the battle is, this final battle, it is for the Lord. But we have to understand that every battle that's ever been fought has been for the Lord. Every time that you face such weakness and you boast in your weakness like Paul did, it is so that God is seen as strong. Not as if he is. And not that he tests you so that he can show the world just how strong you are. It's always to show forth his strength. So if he's chosen to allow you to have a thorn, and what we say about thorn is not a besetting sin, that wouldn't be consistent, but more of a physical ailment or something associated like that, something that's a result of fallenness that even apart from sin is really no fault of your own necessarily, but God has just chosen to allow there to be injury and difficulty. You boast in that weakness because it always exists to show that God is strong. Not how tough you are, that wouldn't make sense. If that day is for the Lord, so is every other day that leads to that day. It's to show that He's strong. We are the beneficiaries and the participants in this glorious display that God's putting on. And we need to remember that right now. We need to have that kind of humility when it comes to our life. Sometimes we don't need to first ask, well, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong to get this illness or this sickness? The fact is, sometimes the Lord does allow us to be sick. I mean... Paul does with it in 1 Corinthians 11 when they partook of the Lord's Supper without examining their lives. And he says, this is why some of you are sick. Some have even died because they did not examine themselves rightly and they took the Lord's table. I mean, that's New Testament stuff. You don't get to escape. 
So, I mean, take all your allergy medicine before the next time we do Lord's Supper. Because if you sneeze while I'm reading that passage, somebody's looking at you. But we need to understand that sometimes it's not because simply God is disciplining us, because it wouldn't be punishment anyway for the believer, but He does discipline us at times because we have veered, and He's saying, come back. And He brought out the switch. That's okay. But it's not a punishment as if to pay off our sin. It's to bring us back into fellowship. But sometimes He just allows it. And even though we may ask Him to take it away, He's just simply going to remind you, my grace is sufficient. This is so that I am strong in you. That day is for the Lord. It's a literal day of apparent loss. Look, the nations gather together. And what happens? Well, Israel already is intact at this point. At least they are in Jerusalem. The people have come back together. They are a, they are a recognized entity. Okay? They've been brought back together. You know, before World War II, and I'm not, again, extrapolating out kind of time frames on how the second coming is going to come about. But before World War II, no one could even fathom that Israel would ever be a state. There was a theologian, David Barron, who wrote, who wrote some commentaries that said in 1918, he said this in 1918, um, that there were those who actually predicted that Israel would become a recognized, viable nation state again at some point because it simply seems essential in order for scriptures to be fulfilled in the way that they promised to be fulfilled. And certainly they did not, I think it's 1948 maybe. But that wouldn't have happened, I don't think. I, I think if you look historically, it would not have happened apart from the atrocities that we saw in World War II. Horrible decimation, Holocaust. And he brings, in the face of defeat, but again, remember, we're not saying that all Jews are Christians, but as he brings together his, his people that he chose to work through, that's different than the chosen ones who are all redeemed. And he's gathering nations against his people. Now remember, in chapters in chapter 13, 8, 9, what has he done? He's already brought them together and sifted them like wheat. Two-thirds fell away and a third remained. And what did he do? Purified them. So whatever's remaining at this point in the battle, I believe they are kind of the Jewish believers, the remnant. But you know what? The other nations that are part of the grafted-in Jerusalem or Jews or Israel, the spiritual Israel... They'll be part of this as well. So Israel's intact. The enemies are intact surrounding them. And what is the language? Well, this is language of defeat. I will, the, the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. What a whipping. The people come in and everything that they decimated, they're actually dividing it. I mean, just like the defeat that, that appeared at Christ, right? At his feet, while he's hanging on the cross, they're dividing up with lots his robes. They're dividing the spoils right in the midst of the one that's been defeated or apparently defeated. And some terrible things happen. Houses are plundered, women raped, half the city goes into exile. It is apparent loss. But this literal day of apparent loss, I think, gives way clearly to a literal day of absolute victory. Verse 4, on that day, his feet shall stand. Why? Because verse 3 then the Lord will go out and fight like one who fights. He's going to conquer. The Lord steps in when it seems like victory is lost. And he does this to show the strength of his own glory and his fame because that's associated with the promise that he's made. He's not going to let them be completely defeated because God made a covenant promise to make for himself a people, a spiritual nation through Abraham. 
And what does he do? To, to do this, he steps on the Mount of Olives. Now, this is one of those places where we can see it as literal or figurative. But let me say this. If you look back at 12.1 and see how he is the creator of all, he stretched out the heavens. Look, when creation intervenes with, cre- when, I'm sorry, when creator intervenes with creation, guess what gives? Creation. So if the Lord is going to physically step in, now here's what we have to understand. On one hand, the Lord's already done this. This is where Christ prayed in submitting to the will of the Father being accomplished through His death for the redeeming of His own people. So basically, you have to have your Lord at the Mount of Olives both times. He submits to the Father's will that redemption be accomplished on your behalf, if indeed you're a Christian, that he would submit to the fact that he had to die for sinners like us. This is where Gethsemane is, the Mount of Olives. And he's submitting. And what happens? I mean, history literally is divided at that point. You've got B.C. and A.D. But more than just the imagery, I think it's absolutely possible. Hey, if Christ is going to come and battle... Wage war? What's an earthquake? In fact, I think what kind of fuels the literal nature of this is when they refer back to a known earthquake during the time of King Uzziah's uh, reign. When he refers that, when he reigned in Judah. That was an actual earthquake. And he's saying it's going to be like that. So it sounds like to me, something's splitting. The earth, and there's going to be a great division. And much in the way that he splits the Red Sea, he makes a way for his people to escape. And they do in the midst of all this. There will be a cataclysmic response to Christ's rule and reign when He steps on the plane of the earth to have victory. But why is He having victory? He's having victory for the purpose of having for Himself a people that they will have a dwelling place that is holy. So what what He's doing basically is He's clearing out all those that He's judging And he's establishing for himself the actual people who will make up that city, which is where we pick up in verse 6. On that day, there will be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. So what does he do? Well, it looks like there's a battle that's being lost, and it is actually for the moment lost, and then he steps in and he wins, but he wins in order to establish for himself this kingdom where he reigns as king and his people there. I mean, that is the theme of what we've been talking about. When you look at the end of 13, he says... I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. God is establishing a place of dwelling so that this occurs. He's their God. They are his people. And so here's what the city looks like. First of all, let's look at what's not there. Well, and and this is a pretty strong grouping, so we keep them together. Light, cold, or frost. He says there's none. 
Now again, if you look back at 12.1, he says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So basically, when God is intervening and when he's establishing something, here's what we can understand, is that creation gives way to all that creation has pointed to. So the Mount of Olives has been this place where the Savior would go and intercede for us and actually then would begin his process of of the intervention for us and then literally dividing time. And then one day we'll come, stand on that same mount, create a conquering that will divide literally the land. And then what we end up having is once the city is established, everything that creation was ever designed to do, which is to reflect the glory of God, gives way. It gives way. What's absent here is anything that generates light and heat. The sun. Doesn't Revelation tell us this? There shall be no more sun. Why? Somebody tell me. The Lord will be its light. Christ will be the light. That's why. Guys, look. When you, when you look at the sunlight, when you look at a beautiful day, it looks like we're going to have a beautiful day today. When you notice creation, all of it is meant to launch you to think of what creation represents, which is creator. But even the sunlight is temporal. It's like our marriage. Our marriages should be these awesome reflections of the relationship covenantally between God and His people. So we should seek that they be these places where people can see Christ and the church and our marriages. But one day they will give way to something permanent, better. Creation points to Creator. You know, if you consider that the heavenlies, the universe, if it really is created in all of its greatness and its expanse that just blows our mind and its vastness, if you actually think that it was actually created to put God on display, then it totally makes sense. If you're going to be man-centered and you think there's got to be life out there, there's got to be aliens, I'm, to- I'm telling you, if I wasn't a believer, that's totally where I'd go. And they did build the pyramids. I mean, if I were, you know, not like I am now. But I, I'd have conspiracy theories, and, 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 and you would see. And, but I tell you, there's times when you read the Scriptures, you're going, wow, man, if I was like this UFO uh, Roswell person, I mean, that's kind of what that sounds like. Don't worry. We're about to get to zombies, actually, though. That's kind of cool. So he establishes a city. What's absent is the presence of light-generating heat, the sun. What's present? An evening light, the light of the sun. Revelation 21, 23 and 24 is the reference that tells us the sun gives way to the sun, S-O-N, and he will be its light. He will be the radiation. Everything that you receive from it, including its warmth as well as illumination, will be satisfying to you. That's how thorough and complete will be the presence of Christ. Flowing out of it also you have living waters. This parallels, I think, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse themselves from sin and uncleanness. These flowing waters will remind us that He has washed us and cleansed us, but it also will be this thing that reminds us of deep satisfaction as we find in Jeremiah 2 and Jeremiah 17 that as these actual, I think, fountain flows through the, the middle of the new city, that as it flows through the middle of the new city, it's going to remind us that He has cleansed us once and for all, but He's also satisfied us forever. That nothing could satisfy us more. 
This is why you have to remember, God did not save you so that you could use Him to find satisfaction somewhere else. That's not God and that's not salvation. He saves you and redeems you. He cleanses you with the water so that you realize that the water is all that you need, the living water who is Christ. He saves you to satisfy you in Himself. Not something else. He's not a life coach. He's not a guru. The Scriptures are not a life manual. He is all satisfying. He is the point of being saved. And I'm telling you, if if you don't believe that or if you don't think that's true, you are going to... Heaven is not where you want to be. Because everything is flowing out of this all-satisfying water. We also say that He's going to be king. He's going to reign. He'll be king over the whole earth. His name will be one. There will be solidarity in Him. He will be one. No others. But it's always been that way. But at the same time, everyone will recognize the kingship of our Lord. But what else is present in the city? Well, His people. His people. They're gathered together in the city. He's made the city for himself to reside with his own people. It's beautiful. He's the light. He's the satisfaction. He's reigning as ruler over people that he has graciously brought into his presence, that he is satisfied with his cleansing. What's the city look like? Well, this city's elevated. Basically, everything else around this new Jerusalem has been made a plain, flat. Jerusalem remains elevated while everything else remains And it's just teeming with secured, happy people. Why? Because they will dwell in security, as the text says. There will be a decree. There will be no more destruction. The one who satisfies will be the one who secures them. But in doing so, what does he do? He also then has to, because he is a just God... And he's holy. As surely as he has to cleanse everyone that would be in his presence to be able to be in his presence, they have to be holy. Well, all those who refuse to be with him and have their sins cleansed, there will be a purge. There will be a cleansing. He will judge those nations and those peoples who have refused to submit to his rule. And that's where this goes next in verses 12 through 15. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of the other, of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of another. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected gold, silver and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Um, this is really, it, it's, I know it sounds crazy, but it's, it's really pretty easy to understand. Two words. Zombie apocalypse. It would be cool, World War Z's for Zechariah, that'd be cool if we could call it that. But what you have here is, again, if I'm going to take this literally, I mean, I don't know exactly what brings about such a plague. But I do find it interesting that our world is just so stinking fascinated right now with zombies. Seriously. 
It's fascinating. I mean, it's gross, but it's fascinating. This describes how God will come against everything, anything in creation. Basically, what he does is not only will they be plagued, still walking around almost like these corpses, there will be panic, but that panic is associated not just with what's happening to them physically, but also what's happening around them. Everything they had placed stock in, God has taken away. Now, remember, this is... I mean, he's speaking about, when he talks of cattle going away, he's talking about food supply. Maybe even at this point, transportation. Who knows? Who knows? In such a post-apocalyptic world, who knows? But everything they had placed stock in, which their chariots, their horses, their gold, their refinement, everything that basically they would worship, God takes away, and it causes panic. Why wouldn't it? The king that they've been railing against all these years by replacing him with all these lesser things has just decimated all the lesser things so that only he remains. That would cause panic if you have not worshipped that king. See, we are given multiple second chances, but once he sets foot on the Mount of Olives and he returns to conquer, your offerings of second chances are over. While it is called today, you are to repent and return to the Lord. We are given multiple, multiple second chances. But it will not persist. And then he assembles for himself the spiritual nation that are to be holy, 16 through 19. Then everyone who survives all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go to Jerusalem to worship the king's, the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then, then, uh, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the feast of booze. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do, no, do not go up to keep the feast of booze. Now, here's how I understand this. As he's, he's basically kind of this could come under what we just said about the plague of the nations, but it, this is the last fail swoop of opportunity. But again, what a beautiful display of his mercy that in the midst of such decimation, he's still saying, if there are people that respond to this, what's going on, he will still receive them. If they respond that he is the only one to be worshipped and, and they say no to all other gods and they come to him, of course, we know that redemption to be through Christ, so he'll be known. He still gives an offering. But if not... This plague's going to happen to them. There will be just so this day of the Lord is the consummate end of the opportunity for second chances. But even up until that time, our gracious King is offering opportunities for people to come and worship Him. He's infinitely long suffering. And if you're saved, this is the God who does not despise you, does not reject you, but just simply calls you that until that day, do what I've said. I will protect you. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm not mad at you. I don't hate you. I can, he, he can despise your sinful actions at times, but he will lovingly draw you back again and again and again. He is going to assemble a spiritual nation, and this mercy being extended are to nations that are non-Jewish, as he has done. Even though in the Old Testament he primarily worked through the Jews, he still would reach out through Joel to the nations, through Jonah to Nineveh. Non-Jewish. He still reached Gentiles. But then it like flips, and in the New Testament, we know that he gives not preferential treatment, but he, 
he predisposes his work and his emphasis. Paul even says, I hope that it causes my nation jealousy so that more would come in. But he's going to go proclaim where it's never been told. God is going to bring for himself a spiritual nation. He's going to assemble them. What we also see in this is that those who actually do refuse this last offering is that we see that ultimately what sin is, it is a rejection of the worship of God. That is ultimately what sin is. Or as R.C. Sproul put it, every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in His sovereign authority. Cosmic treason. What we see is in this last offering, we see a picture of what all sin, all rejection of the gospel really is. It is a refusal to worship God as the only God and for us to be His people through His only provision who is Christ. And he says this nation that he brings to himself, here's what they're going to look like. Verse 20. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And that's how the book ends. Now here's a curious part that we have in the middle of this. And this has always bothered me about the second coming. Sounds weird to even say that, especially as a pastor. But there's something that's always bothered me is the return of temple practices. But here's what we know is that it represents... Now I think that there could be a return to them, but they're not in the same manner in which they were performed before. Meaning they are remembering that God has already made such a provision and it is symbolic of those who are repenting and coming to Him as the one who fulfills all of the feasts, all of the sacrifices, every other temple practice was fulfilled in the person of Christ. Hebrews tells us that. That through the blood of Christ, we see that just as everything had to be cleansed in the temple through the blood, Christ cleanses us by His blood, in fact, everything has to be cleansed in order to be in God's presence. So what he's saying by basically saying, look, even the bells on the, on the horses is going to have an inscription that says, Holy to the Lord. It means there is nothing in His presence that's not distinctly God's. It's got His stamp on it. It is holy unto Him, separated for a purpose and for Himself. Everything will be holy in the new city as He reigns. Every little thing. This means ultimately that God, when he establishes people back together, he is establishing resident holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is why it's so important for us to understand the nature of holiness. You can't become holy and then be allowed into the kingdom. You have to be made holy, but you have to give evidence that you've been made holy as you go through life to have assurance that you'll be in the kingdom. You see the difference? You can't clean up to be clean to ultimately be in His presence clean. You come to Him dirty as a sinner and He saves you. But if He's really saved you, knowing that He is holy, there will be a desire for you to pursue holiness. This is why then pervasive sin in the life of the believer cannot remain pervasive. It cannot remain persistent. And you say, well, how long is persistent? I don't know. It's better to pursue holiness. It's better when there's warnings in the Scriptures to say, if you don't change, then you are showing that you were never... It's better to pay attention to the warning and say, God, I love you. 
Don't go through the religious rites and practice. Don't try to get baptized to wash away your doubts. Settle it according to the scriptures. God, I want holiness. And he will give you everything necessary. You know why? Because if you're really a Christian, the Holy, the Holy Spirit who desires and demands holiness of you, forming you, fashioning you, making you into that bride that will be blameless on that day, he already dwells inside of you and gives you everything you need to conquer sin. Pursuit of holiness. This is what those who will be in the kingdom do. 1 Peter 1, 13-16 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought. That's right. See, this all goes together. If you're going to do what then Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If he has made you righteous because Christ's righteousness lives in you, then the practice of that righteousness, the holiness, will begin to mark your life. You cannot achieve perfection. But you can be sober-minded. You can set your mind to action. But how does he say do this? On the grace that's to be revealed. So the best way to live in present holiness is to constantly remember there is a future hope. And that future hope of his return and the establishment of his kingdom is that he is holy. So this is the encouragement, right? I think there's a parallel here with Zechariah. They're discouraged. They're being tempted to go back to old practices, which is unholy. That's what trials do. They can bring in either steadfastness or temptation to sin. Anytime we go back to conforming to the world's ways to alleviate the pressure of the trial, we're conforming to unholy living. The best way for you to live holy in the midst of difficulty is to remember that kingdom is still yet to come. And it's a holy dwelling place. And I want to be His. So become who you are if you claim to be His. And if you're not a Christian, you can know without a doubt the only one who ever lived that was holy was Christ. The only one who can make you holy is Christ. You have to acknowledge that you are not holy, that if you have any sin at all, you will not be allowed into His presence. You will be part of these nations on the outskirts. You will be part of those that will receive judgment. But still, while it's called today, He invites you in. He calls you in to receive the holiness that is Christ, to wash you and cleanse you of all your sinfulness. Kevin DeYoung says this in a relatively new book called A Hole in Our Holiness. Even if you could enter heaven without holiness, what would you do? What joy would you feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their character is not your character. What they love, you do not love. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with Him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present... What makes you think it will be a thrill for you in the heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven? Where all is clean and pure, you would not be happy there 
if you were not holy there. Or as Spurgeon put it, sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. So to boil it all down, let me just ask you, if you could push back all the muck, what is it your heart really delights in right now? If you long for holiness, not because you're trying to meticulously achieve God's pleasure or His acceptance of you, but because He has saved you and you want to live for His pleasure, because you know back there is nothing pleases you more than just Him, through that he will make you holy set your eyes on the future kingdom and what he's done to secure that kingdom for you at the cross and you will find encouragement and strength to make it right now but if you find yourself just as happy in unholy circumstances you are not his own while it is called today come come In closing, I would encourage you at some point to spend time, maybe for those of you who have family devotions, or even if you don't, this is a good time to start. 2 Peter chapter 3, 11-18. 2 Peter chapter 3, 11-18. I had it built in for us to work through some application there, but I think it's better what we just finished on. I would encourage you to visit and spend time in 2 Peter 3, 11-18 today. Because I think in it you'll find some clear, distinct biblical patterns for how you should live resolutely as a Christian who is pursuing holiness in light of what we've talked about today about a coming kingdom in Christ. You will be encouraged to pursue holiness. You will be encouraged to persist in a mission because His patience means the bringing in of more from these nations. You will learn the, the, the treasure of persevering and growth both in grace and in knowledge. So I want to encourage you, pursue holiness. Persist in simply doing what He's left you here for in the meantime until He establishes that kingdom. And all the while, grow. Don't stop learning. Don't stop knowing. Be like Paul, resolve to know even if nothing less than Christ and Him crucified. In Him you will find your satisfaction. As we go to a time of response, I just ask yourself the question I posed. What do you delight in most right now? It will be telling on whether or not you are a child of the King and heading toward that kingdom. Examine. In a few moments as we sing, we'll give you an opportunity to visit with some of our elders. Let them pray over you. Pray with you, especially if you have questions about what it means to come to Christ. Because what we say there is, I think, very simple. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, the Holy One, Christ. You have to believe that your sin deserves death and Christ actually did that for you. You have to believe that He did rise from the dead three days later so that you are saved actually forever and not just maybe. But not just believing in those truths, you actually have to delight in those truths enough so that those truths cause you to turn from delighting in the world. To Even if you don't know how yet, don't worry about that. That's where the church needs to disciple you, where you want 
Christ more than anything. If what would delight your soul more than anything is just Christ right now, there's a good chance the Spirit of God is moving in you to salvation. God, I pray that you would bring us to a point of response that would be pleasing to you, be changing to those who need change, and that you would bring salvation to those who realize that their delight has been in the world, but this morning they realize that they really do want Christ. They want Jesus. They want to be holy before the Lord in your presence for eternity, and they know that on their own merits, that's not going to work. Even if they have a healthy fear of judgment, God, that it would be exceeded by a delight and a desire for Christ's rescue. Lord, for the Christian, bring them to a place of examining the practicality of where they are in the pursuit of holiness. Knowing that one day we will be a holy people and we should be living in such a way that increasingly, daily, weekly, monthly, annually, we are increasing in our desire for holiness. Not a fundamentalist kind of living that's just rigid according to laws, but a, a desire to, yes, obey your word. Yes, follow your ways. But enjoy what that protects us from and what that reveals in us and what it shows us about you so that then we can freely be on mission to proclaim the good news that Christ came and died for sinners like us and that he's alive. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.